It is a certain time of year in Denver right now. Yep, flowers are blooming and it's really starting to feel like spring. Yeah, 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 all that kind of stuff. But it's also when you start hearing things like this at the Colorado State Capitol. We have reached uh, an agreement to offer a strike below amendment in committee tomorrow. No more U-turns, no more detours. This plan moves us boldly forward in the right direction. I've always said all options are on the table as long as we are achieving the goal for our constituents of lowering costs and increasing choice. And we So we're at the point in the annual legislative session where the biggest policies are being introduced and discussed and some of the ones in progress right now may be getting a little bit closer to their final form. So this week on the show, we're here to bring you up to date on all of this, the deal making, the maneuvering, and even if you're new to this, what's happening right now in the Capitol might tell you a little bit about the state of Colorado politics right now. From member-supported CPR News, this is Purplish, a show about Colorado politics and democracy. I'm Andrew Kenny with my colleague Benta Berkland. Hey, Andy. Hello. So now that we're more than halfway through the session, God willing, we wanted to check in with a few of the big ideas that we've been telling you about all season on the podcast. Exactly. We'll talk about some of the deals, veto threats, and just various drama and discussions about four big policy issues, transportation, a public health care option, gun control, and climate. Let's get right into it. You want to start with transportation? Sounds good. So first up, yeah, after months, some would say years, depending who you are, of waiting, we got finally a copy of all 197 pages of the state's big transportation bill for this year. So I called up Nate Miner the other day, our transportation reporter. Hi, Andy Kenny. (laughs) Nate Miner, hello. He and I have been following along with the development of this transportation package for months now, waiting for the actual bill, the legislation, to finally be introduced. We've been waiting, we've been poking, and it was always, uh, we're thinking next week sometime. And next week never happened until this week. Next week arrived this week. (laughs) It did. I I think it's interesting that you and Nate are talking about that because on so many of the big policies, you know, we're kind of like, wait, when is this coming? And everyone's asking about that at the Capitol, but they are still tweaking the language and and working with people, kind of some of the final behind the scenes negotiations, not that it won't be negotiated publicly as well, but it it does take longer than you you expect it to take. (laughs) Just like everything, it's going to take until next week. So next week did finally arrive and Democrats called Everybody down to the legislature, to the Capitol for a press conference, the governor who talked about no more U-turns on this big transportation issue, and CDOT, environmentalists, a couple Republicans, kind of a a motley crew, Nate said. And of course, you know, it's a lot of people who don't always necessarily see eye to eye on transportation issues, but now they kind of had a deal. This is something that has been, you know, under construction for for a long time. The state is, has tried to figure out transportation funding again and again and again, and uh, just has not been able to pull off a, a new big system, really. Mm-hmm. And that's what this bill is. It's Yes, it's new money, but more than that, it's a new system for funding transportation. Um, so that that's a pretty big deal. And, and you can sort of understand why um, you need all those people uh, up there to, to really push this through and also why it's taken so long. So, Andy, what is this big idea? What did lawmakers finally settle on that they want to try to pass this session? Yeah, Benta, what they finally settled on was close to what they were discussing earlier. It's about a $5 billion spending package 
the largest amount of that going toward roads and highways, stuff like the infamous Floyd Hill on I-70 going up Mm -hmm. into the foothills, repaving some of those neglected rural roads all across the state, really filling out CDOT's 10-year plan. Okay. Uh, But the plans also include stuff like bus lanes and stations on highways, and basically a lot of the other half of the money goes to local governments, transit projects, and really quite a lot of money comparatively for electric vehicles. So Nate had said it's it's not just the fact that there's billions of dollars going into the transportation system, but that this proposal creates a new system for funding transportation. Uh-huh. So what is the new system? Indeed. Well, like every other major piece of legislation, it seems like it's going to be funded by fees. And that's what this bill is full of. We've got fees on gasoline sales, on, on diesel sales, um, on uh, a ride in an Uber, on food delivery, huh. on Amazon packages. Um, So pretty much everything under the sun that uses the transportation system, there's going to be some sort of new fee on it. They're they're pretty small to start out with, but they'll they'll go up over a few cents there. Exactly. But they'll go up over time automatically. I mean, one thing I've been hearing from people opposed to this is it's a quote fee, but they see it as a tax increase that first off voters should be approving mm-hmm. and that these fees are going to negatively impact lower income Coloradans and that this is not the right approach at all to take for this. Yeah, we've discussed that on the show before, but like fees are what they're leaning on Democratic lawmakers to get around the fact that voters never, almost never approve new taxes. And yeah, uh, a lot of times they do have a regressive effect. So that's one area where I think we could see backlash. You know, maybe we'll see uh, ballot initiatives introduced to fight back against these kind of raising fees. But Democrats will tell you like this is the only way to meet the needs that are widely agreed upon. It's not just conservatives that oppose this package, right? Yeah, I don't know about opposition from the left, but there's definitely been skepticism and criticism about the fact that it's very road and highway centric. It's Mm. not the package that's going to build a giant new transit system. Maybe that'll come later with some of the stimulus dollars, but this is really focused on fortifying and, you know, to some extent, revising the current system of roads and highways. Our next check-in is on the public option. And Andy, I I learned from your reporting that the measures changed and it's not technically a public option anymore. Talk a little bit about that and then just tell us where this stands. How much time do we have? Um, (laughs) So, yes, it's no longer a public option in the sense that I think a lot of people would define that, which is a government-run insurance company, essentially, that sells you insurance directly. But the whole definition of public options got kind of squishy lately with some of the different state-level reforms. So what it is instead, I'm calling it a public-private option. The sponsors are calling it a Colorado option. Basically, it's a highly regulated insurance plan with certain benefits that's sold by private companies. And those private companies are expected to also limit the costs to consumers. Okay, so it's this goal to lower costs for customers and it's for customers who purchase health insurance individually and on the small group market for small businesses and whatnot. And some of the major industry players are you know were strongly opposed mm-hmm. to a public option but now they are neutral yeah. because they reached a deal with Democrats. Yeah, that was pretty remarkable. The major hospital association in Colorado, the major insurance plan association are saying that they will not oppose, they're not going to support it, but they'll be neutral on this Colorado option bill, assuming that it meets a few conditions that they're asking for, which, yeah, is from what I've heard from experts, it's pretty unheard of for this kind of reform. 
So why do you think health insurance companies, hospitals who were strongly opposed are, are okay with this now? They, they're fine with these additional regulations? Because that's essentially what it is, right? More government regulations. Yeah, more regulation, more controls on what they can charge, on the costs. And I don't know why they're okay with it is like a billion dollar question. On the one hand, the industry groups, they'll tell you, we share the goal of lowering costs. And this got to a place where we could agree with the approach, basically, or we, we didn't hate it that much. Um, you know, and then you could kind of ask, well, are they worried that the state Democrats would do something more aggressive, more mm -hmm. aggressive regulation? So they just wanted to come to a compromise. Or maybe I've heard from some experts that worry, you know, if the industry gets on board with this, maybe it's because it doesn't have enough teeth and maybe it won't actually do anything that immediately to control costs. Maybe they think that they can kind of delay out the game a little bit. These things are complicated and it can take quite a few years to actually see what effect they'll have on the market. The only other state that's passed something similar to this is Washington state. And Andy, what can we learn about what happened there? I mean, it seems like it's not going super well yet. Only 2,000 people have signed up for this plan, and the deductibles aren't as low as other plans that were already being offered in Washington. Well, it's hard to throw out too many lessons yet. Washington only started selling these plans basically last November or so. And yeah, it was kind of a flop, their public option, as they're calling it, at least at first. It wasn't widely available. It was only available in like half the counties. It wasn't always the cheapest option. And so that led some critics to quickly declare, bad idea. But when I talked to experts, I found some reasons for that. They're saying that the Colorado version will have basically stronger regulations and requirements potentially, so it actually is available everywhere, which would contribute to people buying it is they have to be able to buy it. And the other thing was that Washington had some success with a different part of their law that was similar to the public option, but not quite the same. And actually, a lot of people flocked to that, which was evidence that people do want some of the benefits that Democrats are talking about in both these states, which is stuff like lower deductibles, lower out-of-pocket costs. So now that the industry in Colorado is is neutral, which may not seem like a big deal to people outside of the Capitol, but going from opposed to neutral mm -hmm. is is a big thing. <laughs> Do you see much of a barrier to this bill passing this session? Yeah, I'm eager to see what the next couple weeks of debate on this looks like, because we could end up in the interesting position where Democrats are all for it. The deal makes it a lot easier for Democrats in the Senate, I think, to get on board with this. It's less political risk. The health industry is not burning it down. But then maybe Republicans will still be strongly opposed because they have really criticized this throughout as being a step towards socialized medicine mm -hmm. and just an unnecessary disruption and risk. And just, you know, government overreach on regulations mm -hmm. that what we're seeing from Washington state, we don't know how effective it's going to be. Yeah. So we could end up with kind of an interesting split there of who's on what side. Right after the horrific attack in the Boulder King Supers, we did an episode on what we should expect next in terms of laws. And at the time, some lawmakers from Boulder were talking about introducing an assault weapons ban at the state level. Almost immediately after the mass shooting, we saw Democrats, some prominent Democrats, including the Senate Majority Leader who represents that district in Boulder, mm -hmm. saying they wanted to do a statewide assault-style weapons ban. Where is that now? It didn't gain a lot of traction almost immediately. First off, you had some more moderate Democrats who were not supportive of that and never were going to be, felt like it violated constitutional rights. Still, you can lose a few Democratic votes at the Capitol just because they have a pretty healthy majority. Mm -hmm. 
But the idea got squashed pretty quickly after Democratic Representative Tom Sullivan weighed in. He is one of the leading advocates in the state for stricter gun policies. His son, Alex, was killed in the Aurora theater shooting. This is one of the issues that prompted Sullivan to run for elected office. He's sponsoring legislation this session and has done so before. Firstly, he wanted it to be at the federal level if there's going to be a ban. And then also he said it would be the wrong approach because it could derail all the other legislation on on gun policies that lawmakers wanted to push forward this session. So he said it would be the wrong approach and it wouldn't be productive. He said that even though it's, it's there's not going to be a statewide ban on anything, he still feels like this legislative session may end up being the most transformative legislature Colorado's ever seen relating to gun violence and maybe the most transformative in the country. So don't let anyone tell you that what we're doing here today isn't bold and transformational change. The conversation around how to curb the gun violence epidemic in Colorado is no longer going on in basements and living rooms. It's happening right here on the floor of the House and the Senate. What are they looking at? What are they pursuing? So we have three proposals, three bills that are beginning the legislative process, if you will. One would allow local governments to pass stricter gun laws than the state. So Boulder actually had passed a local assault-style weapons ban. And shortly before the mass shooting, a judge had ruled that that ban was illegal because it was stricter than the state. So this bill would allow cities to pass those bans, and we expect Boulder to reinstate that ban again. Yeah, you can kind of see the symbolic importance of that in that the city tried to say you can't carry these kinds of weapons, and then that same weapon ended up being used in the attack. Right. Uh, I mean, worth noting that the alleged gunman did not purchase that firearm inside the city limits. Mm -hmm. But yes, I think the optics were bad, and we certainly saw a lot of national media pointing that out. Okay, so that's the first bill. What else are they looking at? Another bill would add violent misdemeanors to the types of crimes that would prevent someone from purchasing a gun. So in this case, it will be temporary. It will be for five years, not a lifetime. But um, some of these violent misdemeanors could be things like sexual assault, child abuse, hate crime, cruelty to animals. And that bill would also do away with a policy that requires a gun shop to sell someone a gun, even if the background check isn't complete. So if it's not complete after three days, someone can purchase the firearm. I've heard from opponents saying gun stores don't even do this, but it's called nationally closing the Charleston loophole. Okay, so it sounds like that package would try to get guns out of the hands of more people who have recently been through the criminal justice system and would also try to make sure there's not a loophole that people can use with the background check process. Mm-hmm. With the opposition to that, you know, if they're saying that that doesn't already happen at gun stores, why are they worried about eliminating it? I think opponents would say that all of these proposals are chipping away at the Second Amendment. And they feel these bills are, you know, are either going to be ineffective, unnecessary, unconstitutional, or all of the above. Keep in mind, Democrats had passed two other gun policies before the mass shooting in Boulder. One requires people to report lost and stolen firearms. The other requires people to safely store their firearms. Gotcha. Well, like you mentioned, we're running into some of the really eternal divides, it seems like, on this issue, the same arguments. The third bill in this package, I understand, might address some of those ideas of what's actually effective or not. 
It would, I understand, create an office of gun violence prevention. What is that about? Yep. This office would be housed in the Department of Public Health and Environment. And supporters say the goal here is really to get better data on gun violence, what's causing it, what could prevent it, so they can craft better policies in the future. Most gun deaths in Colorado are overwhelmingly due to suicides. This office would do research, get out into local communities, basically trying to see what's effective. Those kinds of bills are always interesting to me because I think it can be easy for some people to dismiss these kind of more idea-based bills mm-hmm. because they don't immediately do much of anything. They don't create a brand new policy right away. But it does introduce an idea that guns are a public health problem. Yeah, I think that's interesting. A lot of times when lawmakers reach this impasse, it's like, we're going to turn it into a study or mm-hmm. we're going to create a commission. But supporters of this don't see that this fits into that category. They really feel like it will provide this data to move things forward on this policy issue. Hmm. And opponents feel like the concept of an Office of Gun Violence Prevention is problematic because it casts guns as the focus. Instead of looking at violence as a whole or focusing on mental health, you know, it's just specifically firearms. Yeah, that strikes me, that kind of defensive assumption that any study of gun violence is automatically only going to point toward maybe gun restrictions as the answer. I mean, I would bet that it's going to be quite a bit broader than that. Violence is a complicated thing. Mm-hmm. Yes, definitely. And so it'll be interesting to see how these policies move through the legislature. Certainly, Democrats are not monolithic on the issue of guns, so I don't think we're going to get every Democrat even in support of these. But it's not going to be the political fight we would have faced if there was a statewide assault-style weapons ban. Mm -hmm. I can't even imagine what, what that debate would have been like at the Capitol, and I don't have to now. Well, let's finish up with our fourth and final topic, the climate, which interestingly enough is actually the place where Democrats are running into some really significant disagreement. And that's why we've brought back our climate reporter, Sam Brash. Thanks for being here. Of course. So we really want to hear more about the bill that Governor Jared Polis is threatening to veto. Okay, so this is a SB 200. Uh, This is a bill that has been the project for a huge coalition of environmental groups. It's being carried now by uh, Senator Faith Winter and Representative (laughs) Dominique Jackson. And what it's really trying to do is hold Polis to his commitments on climate change. This has come out in a few forms. There was a bill he signed in 2019, which scheduled some huge greenhouse gas reductions in Colorado. Mm -hmm. The notable goal, 50% by 2030, we got to cut greenhouse gas emissions. Environmental groups and a lot of lawmakers feel like Polis has signed that bill and basically shrugged on the enforcement, not really done much, not really passed real rules or regulations or come up with a plans plan to actually make it happen. Set a goal, but not made it clear how to get there. Yeah. And so they're proposing a bill that they think would really make it clear to the governor exactly how he has to go about enforcing Colorado's climate goals. I guess this whole issue that you've covered seems a little bit puzzling to me just because Polis ran on the issue of climate. He has a green reputation. And like you said, he passed these proposals. So he agrees with the end goal. It just doesn't seem like something naturally that he'd be butting heads with other Democrats on. Well, I think you got to like peel back the layers of what Polis has actually said on climate change, right? Remember, when he was running for governor, he wasn't talking about deep emissions reductions. He was talking about 100% renewable energy by 2040, Mm -hmm. which maybe seems like a distinction without a difference. But this is something utilities really want to do anyway, because renewable energy is uh, getting so cheap. Hmm. 
where Polis seems less interested is figuring out how to actually regulate industries to reduce their emissions. And and that goes obviously beyond the utility sector. Because the utility sector is kind of the easy part, right? Yeah, the utility sector is totally, they're, they're, they're working with Polis on this stuff. They're doing it voluntarily. And it should be noted that they have been pretty ambitious. Excel, Black Hills, Tri-State, they've all come out with really ambitious greenhouse gas reduction plans. Mm-hmm. And they haven't always been compelled by the law to do that. Where it gets harder is how do you make concrete? How do you get people to drive different cars? Mm-hmm. What about buildings, people in their offices mm-hmm. and how they heat their homes? I mean, these are huge projects. And these progressive lawmakers say, you can't just imagine that we're going to somehow get there on our own through what's happening just in the private sector. We need real regulations. Polis is saying, okay, maybe we need some regulations, but I want to be able to do that sort of on terms that could change over time. I want small separate bills to do that sector by sector in a pretty targeted way. Mm -hmm. I don't want to figure out one big rulemaking to do it all at once. So it sounds like Democrats, some Democrats are saying, hey, we're going to put more rules, open the doors for tougher regulation on climate to hit these goals that you've agreed to. And Polis is saying, whoa, whoa, slow down. I don't like how far you're reaching with this. And I may use my veto to shut this bill down. Yeah. I mean, he told the Colorado Springs Gazette editorial board that he would veto the bill in its current form. He even noted this pretty remarkable quote. He said it would give Colorado's Air Quality Control Commission, that panel I was just mentioning earlier, near dictatorial control of our total economy. Wow. He does not like this bill. He really, really doesn't like it. So, Sam, do you think this is... Polis negotiating, making it so publicly known that he would actually veto this? That's what I thought at first. And so the next committee hearing after the veto threat, I was like, all right, let's see what happens. Let's see what amendments get Mm -hmm. submitted on this one. I bet this is going to be where we see kind of a, a, you know, some people say, well, let's not send something to the governor that's going to get vetoed. Let's work on something he will pass. And to my surprise, that did not happen. The senators on the finance committee voted it through. Obviously, it still needs to move through the full Senate and the full House. So there's plenty of opportunities for negotiation going forward. But lawmakers are upset with Polis on this one. They really feel like he is not carrying out the spirit of the law they passed. Because when Democrats run into issues like this with the governor, typically they will not just send him something I don't think this would be a good look if he has to veto this and they put this before him on an issue that Democrats have run for office on. Yeah. And on other policies, Democrats will work with him or the bill doesn't end up reaching his desk at all. Yeah, I think you're completely right about that. We'll see what happens. I think it's a matter of how much pressure Polis feels and how committed lawmakers are to really sticking it to him on this one. I mean, one thing I've been surprised with is how many groups outside the Capitol are campaigning now to get Polis not to veto this bill. Hardcore voter advocacy groups like New Era Colorado, obviously all these really powerful environmental organizations which make huge donations to lawmakers like Mm -hmm. Conservation Colorado and the Sierra Club, they are gunning for Polis on this one. I don't see any of them slowing down. It's hard to imagine Polis backing down either. So No. And I, and I think on this one, I mean, we can parse his comments, but this is ideological. Uh, the way I read his comments to the editorial board, talking about near dictatorial control of our entire economy, I'm not sure that he has an objection to the bill that can be solved with a few carefully tailored amendments. He really, really, really does not want a single regulatory body deciding how the state is going to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. 
before we go, I wanted to stop as we usually do and talk about something that I read that made me stop and go, wait, what? In this case, it was an item in Chase Woodruff. He's a reporter for Colorado Newsline. He's got a, a newsletter now called Lit Out West. And in one of his recent editions, he described March 15th, 1894 as the day in his eyes that the West really died, the old Wild West. Uh, that day was known as the City Hall War. Have you guys heard of this ever? No. No. <laughs> so the governor, Davis Waite, ordered that day the state infantry to essentially blockade Denver City Hall. And if you can imagine, basically a militia, the state infantry lined up with cannons and Gatling guns outside of the old Denver City Hall. Hmm. Waite had decided he was apparently a crusader against corruption, and he had decided to fire some of his appointees for basically being intransigent, refusing to listen to him. And of course, they refused to listen to him. They wouldn't leave. They were at the city hall. The police helped them hole up. So you end up in the situation where the Colorado state government is besieging the Denver city government, which is weird enough already, right? Mm-hmm. What, um, you know, that day they end up going home peaceably because like the state Supreme Court decides to intervene. But the really funny part that Chase pointed out, do you guys remember those cannons that used to sit outside the Colorado state capitol? Yeah, I do. They're a really popular place where people have you know, protests and press conferences is on yeah. the west side of the Capitol. And on those Capitol steps at the very end of kind of this parking area were those cannons. I do not remember the cannons. No, Bent, Bent is well familiar. Yeah. <laughs> they were by the old Civil War infantry statue. Uh-huh. So as it turns out, those same cannons might have actually been conceivably the same ones that were previously pointed at Denver City Hall. They were passed down from the infantry mm. and donated and ironically, they ended up in that position pointing at the new city hall. Wow, that's weird. Yeah, I guess I just thought it was part of the Civil War statue. I have to say, I never gave the cannons much thought. Me neither, but Chase did. Um, <laughs> the last thing that was kind of funny about this that I read uh, doing my own research on it was that the last time they were fired was, I think, 1930. They they stopped using them then because the cannons lit the basically the reenactors' clothes on fire. And at that point, they decided maybe we should actually cap these off. Anyway, they disappeared last year when the statue went down, and and now there are no more cannons. Huh. And and why is this, like, the moment the Wild West ended? Oh, boy. You'll have to read Chase's newsletter for that. (laughs) Cool. Okay. Well, after a brief history lesson, that is it for this week's episode. Purplish is a production of member-supported Colorado Public Radio. Learn about becoming a member and join today at CPR.org. I'm Andrew Kenny with my colleagues Benta Berkland and Sam Brash. You can find me on Twitter at Benta Berkland. And I'm on Twitter as well at Samuel Brash. We'll be back in your podcast feeds next week. This is Purplish from CPR News. That's me talking in reverse. Okay. Um...